Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This is how it's supposed to work. There are safe countries and unsafe countries. And if you're from an unsafe country, then your dream is supposed to be to get your ass to a safe country. And when you do... There is a system for you, a system that's supposed to go like this. Country number one, that's the one that you fled. That's the unsafe one. Lucky you, you then set foot in country number two, your second country, a safe country. And that is where you have to plead your case. Try to get papers, refugee status, whatever. And if, for whatever reason, that doesn't work out for you, you're done. Go back to country number one. You do not get to shop around to see if things might go better for you elsewhere. Us safe countries are united on that. That's why we have the Safe Third Country Agreement, which is an agreement that Canada signed with the United States to share responsibility for asylum seekers. Under this agreement, which came into effect in 2004, People seeking asylum must make their claim in the first safe country they enter, those safe countries being the United States and Canada. That means for most refugees traveling north by land from Latin America, the U.S. is the only safe choice. But what if it isn't? Safe, that is. 
And what if Canada knew that the United States, our closest ally and our biggest trading partner, our military defender, what if we knew that it is actually an unsafe place to send migrants to? But we kept doing it anyhow. When U.S. President Joseph Biden visited Canada last month, he and Justin Trudeau expanded the Safe Third Country Agreement, closing the so-called irregular border crossings, like Roxham Road, and ensuring that many, many more asylum seekers who set foot in Canada from the U.S. will now be handed back to America. And what Prime Minister Trudeau knew when he signed that expansion is that in America, those people will face a higher likelihood of detention, of human trafficking, and assault than if we let them stay here. In other words, he knew that America isn't safe. But, you know, how exactly would he bring that up? And what will it mean if Canadian courts force the prime minister's hand, ruling that the United States has no place on a list of safe countries? As it turns out, that's been happening. Reporter Cherie Sucherin is here in a moment with the evidence, some of which the Canadian Supreme Court is weighing right now. It goes back a while. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Nathan Garber, Christian Ludig, Nadia Braganolo, Josh Gallant, Deb Gervin, Aaron Showalter, Martin Settle, and Ian. Hi, I'm Ian, a tech worker living in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. I started supporting Canada Land because I wanted the socks you had on promo a couple of years ago. And I continue to support the network because of the team's creativity and experimenting with new shows and formats, the great investigative journalism on Commons, and to hear the sweet, sweet sound of Emily Nicola keeping Jesse in check. Through more than a century of that historic endeavor, Canada and the United States have had each other's backs. In war and in peace, we have been the stronghold of liberty, safeguard for the fundamental freedoms that literally give our lives meaning. Today, our destinies are intertwined, not because of the inevitability of geography, but because it's a choice, a choice we've made again and again. The United States chooses to link our future with Canada because we know that we'll find no better partner and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. No more reliable ally. No more steady friend. And today I say to you and to all the people of Canada that you will always, always be able to count on the United States of America. I guarantee you. That's U.S. President Joe Biden speaking last month in the House of Commons during his first official visit to Canada. During the visit, one theme kept coming up the long and enduring friendship between Canada and the U.S. Canada is a partner with the U.S. in countless accords and agreements. NORAD, NATO, Five Eyes, CUSMA, the list goes on. From the outside, it appears that Canada and the U.S. have so much in common, both wealthy first world countries, both liberal democracies, both safe countries. And last month, during Biden's visit to Ottawa, Prime Minister Trudeau announced yet another agreement was to be expanded, the Safe Third Country Agreement. 
Keeping people safe also includes keeping asylum seekers safe. This is why we will now apply the Safe Third Country Agreement to asylum seekers who cross between official points of entry. After midnight tonight, police and border officers will enforce the agreement and return irregular border crossers to the closest port of entry with the United States. According to the Safe Third Country Agreement, which was signed in 2002, an asylum seeker must make their claim at the first country they land in, either Canada or the U.S. Both countries mutually designate each other as safe countries from which to seek refuge. In essence, there would be no difference between the two countries when making a claim. The expansion of this agreement, which took effect in March, closes access points along the border, like at Roxham Road. These points are not classified as official ports of entry, so they allow thousands of asylum seekers to bypass the U.S. immigration system and instead make their claim in Canada. And the idea that Canada is a safer or more desirable place for asylum seekers might be a bit confusing to some Americans. This is from CBS News in their coverage of the Biden visit. So speaking of immigration and border security, this was actually quite surprising to me. I had to Google this because I, I, I said that's, that's not accurate. I mean, how many people are really crossing the border into Canada? It turns out there has been a substantial uptick in people crossing the border from the U.S. into Canada. Last year, 40,000 people crossed over into Canada from the U.S. through these irregular border crossings. And this crossing isn't illegal. Or at least it wasn't until last month. And lately, there's been a lot of news coverage about how people make this journey, usually taking a taxi or a bus to the U.S.-Canada border and then stealthily walking their way across, sometimes in harsh weather conditions. Some have lost extremities to frostbite on the journey over. Some have died. And the idea they're doing this challenges the fundamental idea in the Safe Third Country Agreement and in the Canada-U.S. relationship overall. The idea that the U.S. is a safe place. And it's not just asylum seekers who are saying this. I have spoken to immigration experts who say that it's been made abundantly clear that the U.S. does not have the same level of safety for migrants as Canada does. And they say Canada has known about this long before the STCA was ever enacted. They point to a fundamental flaw in the Canada-U.S. relationship where Canada has turned a blind eye to the documented human rights violations we continue to send asylum seekers back to face. But let's back up a little. Before Trudeau announced the decision to expand the Safe Country Agreement, or STCA, the pressure to address irregular border crossings like the one at Roxham Road had been increasing. The number of people coming through Quebec had nearly doubled since 2019. Critics said it put pressure on police and social services and showed Canada's lack of control over its own asylum system. This week, Justin Trudeau is facing more pressure to shut it down. It is his job to close the border, and we're calling him to do it at the Roxham Road passage within 30 days. If Pierre Polyov wants to build a wall at Roxham Road, someone could do that. The problem is we have 6,000 kilometers worth of undefended shared border with the United States. Trudeau has provincial critics as well. Quebec's premier wants Ottawa to ensure future migrants go to other provinces. The decision to expand STCA and close these crossings was announced, and it was met with criticism from immigration advocates, lawyers, and activists, who said 
the move would make it much more difficult for asylum seekers to get a fair chance. But others were pleased about the decision, like Quebec Premier Francois Legault. What are your thoughts on Roxham Road closing? Are you satisfied? Yeah, I'm very happy. Uh, I think that that's what uh, we were asking for. I think that we were able to put enough pressure on the federal government. And I want to thank Mr. Trudeau and the federal government. I want to thank President Biden also. I'm happy to see that relations between Canada and U.S. are good. The idea that the STCA is an important part of Canada's immigration system and a key part of the Canada-U.S. relationship is a bit new. Because the reality is that the STCA was something Canada wanted based on a desire to exert more control over immigration levels. And because it mostly benefits Canada, we had to negotiate for it. In a recent CTV News interview, former Deputy Prime Minister John Manley describes how Canada fought to make a deal with the U.S. in 2002. What was at the heart of it? What was the motivation really to create the agreement in a post-9-11 world? The Safe Third Agreement was something that we were asking for that the U.S. was actually reluctant to give. Uh, We asked for it because we were facing quite a large inflow of refugee claimants. I can tell you that this was a very difficult agreement to achieve. They didn't want to do it. There were things, of course, that we gave in exchange for it. Dennis Coderre, who was the Minister of Immigration and Citizenship at the time, said the agreement, quote, addresses a fundamental concern about asylum shopping for economic advantage. These days, the idea of asylum shopping is no longer a big part of the immigration discourse. But stopping the high numbers at the border is. The only problem is in order to maintain and expand the Safe Third Country Agreement, Canada needs to ignore mounting evidence that challenges the idea that our neighbor is in fact safe. And I'll get to that research in a bit. But first... I want you to meet someone. I'll refer to him as Cruz to protect his identity. He grew up in Honduras, where he married his childhood sweetheart and had a couple kids. But there he was worried for his family's safety. Gang violence forced him to make the choice to leave Honduras in search of a safe place to raise his family. Honduras is a really nice country, but the meantime, is not safe for some uh, people. I used to have my own business, and I get kind of extortions, and uh, it was not safe to live for uh, myself and another family members. In 2017, he started the journey that would end at an irregular crossing in Canada. He and some friends decided they couldn't risk claiming asylum at a port of entry in the U.S. and ending up deported or in detention. So they decided to make the five-day journey walking from Mexico across the desert into the U.S. And then when I crossed the border from Mexico to the U.S., at uh, daytime, nighttime, we walk 10 days straight up. We only rest a little bit and then we continue but on the fifth day, we run out of our groceries. So we end up getting water from, the, from any farms. We have to get water from the, any, like a little river, creek, whatever we find water, we, we drink. And we see like a, the green, green water, like a really not clean water. 
maybe the horse or the cows drink the water, but that's the, that's what we drink too, because we have nothing to eat or nothing to drink. That's why it takes a long time, because every time we start uh, the helicopter, every time we hear noises from cars driving by, or we saw any border patrol from far away, we have to stop and let them go. But Cruz said he never wanted to turn back, fearing detention, deportation, or even worse. At the U.S., that's the main issue. When you process, you have to be in the detention center. Many people spend months and sometimes years to get clear, or either they accept it or they send you back home. It was either I, I die trying to get to the to the where I want to come, or either I die if he, I get deported in my country. So I got two choices: either die in my country because the unsafe area or I die in the desert at the moment. So I prefer to continue and see how far I can get. The journey across the U.S. took two weeks, where he relied on hitchhiking and panhandling money for bus tickets. Finally, he made it to Washington State and the Canada-U.S. border. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Cruz remembers the day he first set foot in Canada. When I get to Peace Arch, I get to one of the main roads. 
I asked one of the guys, uh, it was uh, near to the road, and I, I asked him, like, hey, um, excuse me, where I am? And then he says, what do you mean, where, where are you? He says, you're in Canada, man. You're, you're in Canada now. So I asked him, uh, where is the bus station? So he, he pointed finger to me. He says, you, ha- you have some change? You want some loonies? And uh, he, I said, yes. So he gave me some money, some loonies. And then I take the bus all the way to downtown, to Vancouver. After a few difficult months in Vancouver, living in shelters, and whichever 24-hour store would allow him to spend the night, he finally got a refugee claim approved. When they tell me, Welcome to Canada. I was, when I get off to the sidewalk, I got something in my throat to, I want to scream to everybody. I, I am Canadian now. I am Canadian now. I, I, I look at the people and I want to scream at them and I want to hug them and tell them. But, and at the meantime, something in me says, calm down. They don't know nothing about you or your life. Later, his wife and kids followed, coming to the U.S. by migrant caravan and eventually making it to Canada. They all have refugee status. And today, Cruz works in construction in a suburb of Vancouver. Stories like Cruz's aren't uncommon. Remember, there were 40,000 people who made the same journey last year. I have to make it clear here that Canada does detain and deport migrants, and our treatment of migrants held in detention has been criticized by global human rights watchers. We are not innocent in this system. In fact, earlier this month, a family of four died in an attempt to get over to the U.S. from Canada by crossing the St. Lawrence River in a boat. They had recently been ordered deported back to Romania by the Canadian government. But by comparison, the U.S. detains and deports more migrants than Canada by far. In 2018, Data tracked over an 18-month period showed that Canada deported about 1% of the irregular border crossers coming from the U.S. Even if all of the people that Canada held in detention that year happened to be asylum claimants, which is unlikely, that would only be less than 1% of them. And the average length of time spent in detention was about 13 days. In the U.S., one way to get a rough picture of where asylum seekers end up is by looking at immigration court data since most cases go through that system. In 2018, over 55% of all cases resulted in detention for some length of time, and over 50% were deported. And according to the Center for American Progress, the average length of time for adults held in detention that year was just under 40 days. And speaking of deportation, there's an entire airline in the U.S. dedicated to it. It's called Ice Air, an airline funded by the U.S. government and run by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a fleet of commercial planes flying deported immigrants out of the United States. It's just so hard. They just just pull you away. You can't even say bye to anybody. So hard. That's my daughter. He was separated from his two young daughters in early March when immigration officials pulled him over on his way to work and took him into custody. And while the immigration detention system was not created by former President Donald Trump, reports of human rights violations in detention had become widespread during his presidency. The Associated Press reported on June 20th that 250 infants, children, and teens were locked up for a month without adequate food, water, and sanitation. At the same station, three girls reportedly took turns taking care of a sick two-year-old boy 
because no one else would. At other facilities on the border, migrants described their living quarters as ice boxes because of how cold they were, and dog pounds for how they were treated. And as we all remember, children were being separated from their parents at these facilities just last year. In 2017, Human Rights Watch investigated deaths that had occurred in detention and found many migrants had little or no access to medical care. In a lot of these cases, people are dying of very treatable diseases. Manuel Cota Domingo was 34 years old when he died of untreated diabetes and pneumonia. Santiago Sierra Sanchez died of a staph infection after delayed medical care. Tiombe Carlos died of suicide after being detained for two and a half years. The likelihood of asylum seekers being detained or deported is again something that Canada has documented evidence about. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. I'm talking to you, you squares. This isn't for freaks, weirdos, hippies, long hairs, yippies, beatniks. Get lost. I'm talking about Squarespace. This is where you build your website. It's an all-in-one platform for squares to build their brand. It's a place for anybody to go and build a website. But really, it's like everything. They've been working on this thing since the last time I looked at them. I checked it out today, and yes, you can still build a beautiful website very easily, very quickly, using these beautiful templates. But my goodness, do they ever have a whole lot of powerful stuff. They have member areas with Squarespace now. It's beautifully executed. So once people are using your website, you can say, hey, they've got some exclusive stuff here if you want to pay us, and it's all taken care of. Appointment scheduling, if your business involves online booking and scheduling, classes, sessions, those sorts of things, clients can easily see your availability. They can reschedule. It's all taken care of. Like That is a time saver to not have to manage that stuff yourself. And hey, because you listen to this podcast, they want to give you a little, little something special here. Here's how you get it. Go to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand. That's important. Squarespace.com slash CanadaLand. You get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use that offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or a domain. Squarespace.com slash CanadaLand. This is lawyer Jamie Liu, an expert in immigration law. There was a lot of evidence before the Canadian government and the courts with regards to the problems with the U.S. refugee determination system. You know, aside from assessing whether or not someone is a refugee, the ways in which the United States has historically dealt with refugee claimants is, you know, problematic. There is documentary evidence in that litigation, for example, indicating that people were automatically detained when they were turned away at the Canada-U.S. border. So, you know, that's that's concerning, the amount of detention, the use of prisons to put or basically contain refugee claimants. It's a problem. You know, that kind of treatment is not one that should be seen in a country that's supposed to be refugee-friendly or one that's supposed to be abiding by the Refugee Convention, for example, right? She says it's also not uncommon for asylum seekers to make the decision to journey to Canada after hearing about experiences of other people in their community. You know, a lot of refugees do make decisions based on anecdotal and lived experience from people within the same community, linguistically, ethnically, nationally, or otherwise. So I do see that happening. The documentary evidence Lou mentions is substantial. You just have to look. 
Maureen Silkoff is a partner at Silkoff Schachter in Toronto, practicing in the area of refugee and immigration law. She is past president of the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers and has sat on Canada's Immigration and Refugee Board. And she says Canada has had this evidence about America for years. This is something that Canada has tracked for a long time. So there's evidence about human rights records. You know, in addition, it's no secret what the uh, evidence is uh, before the Supreme Court of Canada, extensive evidence by experts in the field in the United States, uh, experiential evidence of people who uh, have gone through the system, the litigants who took the case to court, what their experiences have been with the system, in particular the horrific conditions of some of them in jail. She points to two studies that were conducted before the Safe Third Country Agreement was even signed. In particular, a 2002 report from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which said that refugee claims based on people fleeing gender-based violence were not treated the same in the U.S. and Canada. So this was the uh, House of Commons Citizenship and Immigration Committee. And the committee said, well, and I'm actually going to quote this because it's quite telling. It said, until such time as the American regulations regarding gender-based persecution are consistent with Canadian practice, women claiming refugee status on the basis that they are victims of domestic violence be listed as an exempt category, end quote. And not only that, the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, the UNHCR, did its own study of the proposed regulations at the time, and UNHCR was concerned about widespread use of detention in the United States immigration system for asylum seekers. Uh, It was also concerned about gender-based claims because of deficiencies in the U.S. system. So we saw back in 2002 that there were concerns, and uh, I think the landscape reveals that those concerns remain very much alive. There have been two separate charter challenges brought against the Safe Third Country Agreement. In 2007, three groups, the Canadian Council for Refugees, the Canadian Council of Churches, and Amnesty International Canada, said that the STCA violated two sections of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Section 2, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and Section 15, the right to non-discrimination. And they brought that argument to the Supreme Court saying that the agreement compromised the safety of migrants by sending them back to the U.S. and into immigration detention and possible deportation, which international courts see as a human rights violation. And the federal court ruled in favor that, yes, there was in fact a charter violation, and the SDCA was struck down. So the federal court determined that there was a violation under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms because of certain deficiencies in the U.S. asylum system. Uh, For example, domestic violence interpretation in terms of the refugee provisions placing women at risk. But then the Canadian government appealed that ruling and won. The matter was appealed by the government to the Federal Court of Appeal. And the Federal Court of Appeal did not displace these factual findings by the lower court. Rather, it ruled on some legal technical issues that ended up setting aside the decision. So, for example, there were issues about what's known as uh, jurisdiction or virus to uh, consider certain aspects 
of the agreement. But, you know, it's interesting that the facts, the concerns, the deficiencies in the U.S. system uh, remained in place. But the agreement as a whole was also left intact. There was a second legal challenge in 2017 with the same three organizations, this time bringing more evidence and more refugee claimants as examples. They brought what was described in the court proceedings as a mountain of evidence. This time, individuals actually uh, came to the border and they were able to uh, describe their experiences. So that really brought the reality of the situation to light. So there was literally a mountain of evidence um, before the court. And once again, the federal court ruled that there was a charter violation mostly focused in that decision on the U.S. detention practices and the fact that asylum seekers were turned around at the Canadian border, uh, risked being put into the U.S. detention system, experienced very, very harsh measures um, in terms of the very poor conditions of detention. Also, it was difficult to get out of detention once you were in detention. It was difficult to properly assert a refugee claim to gather evidence when you're traumatized, when you're often new to the country, you may not know the language, etc. So this extensive use of detention for asylum seekers weighed heavily in terms of the court finding a violation of the charter. And the STCA was struck down again. The ruling from Justice Anne-Marie MacDonald was clear that it was a violation of human rights under the Charter. She wrote that through the STCA, Canada facilitated the transfer of asylum seekers into the hands of the U.S. Quote, CBSA officials are involved in the physical handing over of claimants to U.S. officials. This conduct does not make Canada a passive participant. She went on to describe how these dangers were grossly disproportional to the benefits of the STCA. She cited imprisonment, cruel and unusual detention conditions, solitary confinement, and the risk of deportation, things that she said were not worth the benefits of the responsibility-sharing agreement. She concluded, and I quote, In my view, to find otherwise would be entirely outside the norms accepted in our free and democratic society. The Canadian government appealed again, and despite the evidence, they won, and the ruling was again overturned. Maureen describes this as a ruling based on a technicality. The court said that there wasn't enough of the right kinds of evidence to rule on a charter claim, and that part of the problem was how Canada reviewed the U.S. and not with the legislation as a whole. The deficiencies in the U.S. system remained, and both times the court ruled and found that there were charter violations. Both times it went up to the Court of Appeal, and this time... The Federal Court of Appeal also overturned the lower court's decision and uh, had its own set of reasons to offer. Again, a number of what I would call fairly technical matters. The court also chose not to rule on the Section 15 argument, which deals with discrimination, including gender discrimination. Raji Mangat, the executive director of West Coast Leaf, is part of a team who's taken that decision back to Canada's Supreme Court. She says there's evidence to show that gender-based violence is a major issue facing migrants at the U.S. border and must be addressed. We were really wanting to focus on kind of the the gendered impacts of the safe third country agreement regime and kind of how the 
people who are fleeing uh, gender-based persecution experience kind of unique impacts of not only detention, but the sort of access to justice considerations around being able to make an asylum claim, and then the risk of being returned to your country of origin, where you will continue to face risks of gender-based persecution. But when we think about the kinds of folks who are making asylum claims, they're often people who are vulnerable, um, more marginalized communities um, in their place of origin. And the reason why they're seeking asylum somewhere else is because they're being persecuted. And often that can be on the basis, it's not exclusively on the basis of, um, you know, protected grounds like their gender or their sexual orientation, their race or ethno-cultural identity, but it can be. And this is what Section 15 is specifically aimed at providing protection for. The Supreme Court heard that case last fall and is expected to deliver its ruling soon. But there's another thing. A part of the STCA is that Canada would conduct reviews of the U.S. as a safe country, looking at whether it was compliant with things like the Refugee Convention and Convention Against Torture. But the problem, says Maureen, is that these reviews are completely opaque. Canada is supposed to be looking at the United States human rights record. And importantly, Canada is meant to conduct ongoing reviews of this kind of compliance. So that's been a bit of an issue because the reviews are not transparent. They're not proactively disclosed. And no one really has a good sense of not only what uh, the human rights records are that Canada is looking at, but also uh, what the conclusions are and what the uh, measure is. So part of the problem, these reviews are done in secret. She says it's also important to note that Canada has accepted claims from irregular border crossers at a rate that is comparable to regular claims, meaning that the type of crossing has almost no bearing on whether a person qualifies as a refugee or not. In the U.S., President Joe Biden recently announced new measures that would make it even harder for migrants to claim asylum at the southern border. That notice of proposed rulemaking, as well as what we announced on January 5th, reflects a overarching strategy of building lawful pathways and then, as a complement to that, deliver consequences to those who do not avail themselves of the lawful pathways. This was announced just as Title 42 comes to an end, another immigration measure that was enacted during the pandemic and allowed the U.S. to turn back migrants on the basis of public health, which actually stranded thousands in Mexico. A cost-benefit analysis of the new STCA expansion was published recently by the government of Canada. It reads that the secretive new routes that migrants will take as a result of the new law would, quote, increase the risks of human trafficking and sexual violence targeted at women, girls, and LGBTQI individuals. The memo said that migrants are likely to turn to illicit networks for support. And as a side note, these new rules will also cost an estimated $60 million over 10 years. So it's actually quite shocking that in light of all of this evidence, uh, everything that the Canadian government is aware of in terms of the deficiencies in the U.S. asylum system, that instead of pulling back these harsh measures, the pendulum actually has swung the other way and the uh, border is now virtually 
closed aside from some pre-existing exemptions. Marin says we could be looking into ways to mitigate the harms by creating exemptions in the agreement. In particular, the groups of people least served by the U.S. asylum system, who Canada could be a safe refuge for, like creating exemptions for people facing gender-based violence. So I hope that understanding that there are public policy tools to mitigate some of the harsh consequences of the expansion, that the government will sit down and uh, have a serious look at what could be done uh, as a path forward. Many advocates have called for the end of the Safe Third Country Agreement. They want to strike it down completely. But to do so would be to say that, yes, the U.S. is unsafe for migrants. And while it may be true, doing so would be a huge political statement. In the face of the longstanding, economically important, and friendly relationship Canada has with the U.S., that could be a disastrous statement to make. It might not be something most Canadian leaders or politicians would be willing to stand behind. But there are some calling for Canada to take that bold step. Chris Alexander was the former Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship, serving under Stephen Harper. He was also Canada's ambassador to Afghanistan in the early 2000s. In a panel in 2020 hosted by the Global Migration Lab at the University of Toronto, he was clear Canada needs to face the truth about the U.S. So I don't think there's any way a serious expert with experience in these fields could argue that the United States is a safe place for refugees today. Better than a lot of other countries still, yes. Able to adjudicate many cases, yes. But safe by the standards of the Refugee Convention and the other international instruments whose principles we're supposed to be living up to in these difficult times, no. It should be about peer review, stating the truth, helping each other get to a better place. There have been times in Canada's history where we didn't do as well on these issues. Uh, Today, we should take pride in the fact that we are in a better place and not indulge in the fiction that the United States is anywhere close to meeting the standards that we expect. But for now, while Canada continues to uphold this agreement, there are real people who will have to decide if they want to experience just how safe the U.S. asylum system really is or risk a now illegal border crossing into Canada. People want to be safe and have a better life. And then they will try. It's like when I try to cross the desert 10 days, 10 nights, and I don't want to go back. I want to get to a place where I can be free and have a better living without fear. Many people, they will continue going to a different places to be safe and um, be free. If they want to block the borders, close the border, they have to open a solutions for the people too. Because every time they make it harder, people are going to go around and sometimes they die trying to uh, get to a safe country.
That's your Canada Land. We try to bring you stories like this, uh, stories that we don't think you're going to hear elsewhere. And in order to find them and report them and bring them to you, we need your support. We rely on it. We rely on listeners like you to pay for podcasts like this. And as a supporter, we just want to give you everything we possibly can. You will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, which includes our increasingly excellent bonus content and early releases. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. We got some coming up, actually. More than anything, that'll make you a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You will be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come and join us right now. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me about today's show at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Website is canadaland.com. Today's episode was reported by Cherie Suturin. It was produced by Tristan Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer, with production assistance from Jonathan Goldsby, our news editor. The managing editor of Canada Land is Annette Ejofor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.